Hello, welcome to this BMJ podcast about well-being, sponsored by Medical Protection. I'm Abby Rimmer, careers editor at the BMJ, with an interest in doctors' well-being. And I'm Kat Chatfield, a trained GP with an interest in quality and patient safety. Abby and I co-lead the BMJ's well-being campaign, which is really important for professionals all the time, and especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. So today we're going to be talking about the impact of fatigue and sleep deprivation on performance for healthcare professionals and how that might affect their well-being. Kat, I'll be really interested to hear from our speaker today because I have heard a little bit in the past from um, surgeons at the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh, especially about concerns about the, the length of time that the surgeons take operating without any breaks and what effect that has on them. But I've never really read any research into it so I'll be really interested to hear what he's had what he has to say absolutely and I think although you know there's a clear focus on surgeons and operating times obviously we know that um, a lot of healthcare staff are working really long shifts they're often working extra shifts as colleagues have to self-isolate or are unwell or um, you know just simply burnt out Um, so this is going to be something that's affecting everyone uh, working in the front line of healthcare at the moment Hi there, Um, my name is Dale Wheelahan. I am a PhD candidate in behaviour sciences in Trinity College Dublin. Uh, I'm a physiotherapist by background who worked during the pandemic on the front line while also completing my PhD. And the focus of my research has been on fatigue and the implications of fatigue on performance in surgeons and on physiotherapists. So I'm looking forward to today's conversation. Thank you so much, Dale. And it's really amazing to have someone who occupies all those different areas of, you know, researcher and and sort of frontline clinician as well, uh, and allied health professional, um, because we know that's that's important to our audience. Um, you said that your research is sort of about fatigue and its impact on performance of surgeons and physiotherapists. Could you sort of talk a bit more about some of the themes that you've seen emerging as you've done this work? Absolutely. It was an interesting research, I suppose, in the first instance to start off. I suppose we've had this concept of sleepy surgeons have been existing within healthcare systems for quite a long time now. And there has been a lot of research published out there on the relationship between sleep deprivation and performance. So, but no one's ever kind of done a a systematic review of the whole um, causes and effects, I suppose. So the research really was looking at, in the first instance, sleep deprivation from on-call work, but it grew into a much... I suppose a larger um, project looking at fatigue and the differences between causes of fatigue and sleep deprivation and how they actually might differ with regards to impacts on the different aspects of a surgeon's performance. So I suppose as we enter now into a newer age of healthcare, there's broadening competencies required of healthcare professionals. That's the same for surgery. So in the past, our surgeons were predominantly uh, technical based in the operating theatre nonstop, but they have increasing responsibilities now in pre-operative settings, post-operative settings. So the implications of fatigue on those more non-technical aspects uh, needed further exploration. I'm really interested, Dale. Sorry, Abby, you might want to ask a question, but I'm really interested, in Dale, in that you made a differentiation there between fatigue and sleep deprivation. Um, because to me they're the same they're the same thing so what what do we mean when we're talking about those two things this was one of the actual incidental findings of the literature review is how blurred the concepts are used within um, within particularly the healthcare literature because they are used so interchangeably 
sleep deprivation really is caused by a lack of sleep, basically within the, the name in and of itself. So anything really less than the recommended National Sleep Foundation guidelines of seven hours is going to have a, an impact on aspects of brain function. Um, whereas fatigue is a much more, I suppose, hot topic as to what causes fatigue within individuals. So we know currently of two theories around fatigue. The first is cognitive load theory, which I'm sure you've probably heard of um, having a high cognitive load. And that is really about how much information one can kind of process within um, their environment. But there's emerging um, fields of fatigue research from the psychology disciplines as well. And it's really looking around how is motivation related to fatigue. So are you engaging in tasks that are actually in motivating you and driving you and you feel engaged in them? And if not, how that can contribute to a fatigued state. What happens in healthcare is that you actually can experience fatigue as a symptom from sleep deprivation, um, but you similarly experience sleepiness. So my best way to differentiate them really is you probably don't want to fall asleep if you're fatigued. You probably want to go and take a break from the activity that you're doing or go for a walk or whatever. Whereas if you're sleepy, you do want to fall asleep. <laughs> So can you be fatigued without being tired because you're physically tired or you haven't had enough sleep? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I have personal experience of this from my own PhD in the last nine months. Like I'm a sleep researcher, so I make sure to get my eight hours of sleep at night, but I'm regularly fatigued by the end of the day. And I think it's, it's variation in work as well and doing work that really motivates you. So for me, it was I found the writing process of the thesis really interesting, but the editing process was just not for me. So I found those particularly last two months extremely fatiguing. That's really fascinating because, um, Dale, I've got a background as a GP and we know that a lot of the GPs in the pandemic were, you know, really struggling with the sort of fully on online and telephone consulting aspects of their role, which they found particularly fatiguing um, and particularly had a lack of variation in their work and, you know, trying to understand why that might be and, and how demotivating that was for a lot of people is, is fascinating and just speaks really well to what you were just saying. Um, I think that's going to resonate with a lot of people who are listening. I think you raise a really important point there, Kat, because what telephone or telemedicine has done is taken away the actual aspects of work that many people enjoyed, which was that human interaction, finding out how people are actually getting it on, on their life, making a meaningful connection. So suddenly people are left with the, the aspects of work that perhaps weren't as motivating um, with nothing to kind of counteract that. Yeah. And of course, the very high cognitive load that, that everyone's experiences anyway in their healthcare work. We know it's high cognitive load work, um, but com compounded by the additional cognitive load of COVID and dealing with, you know, uncertainty and, you know, uh, clinical presentations that we didn't know how to diagnose or treat. I think, you know, it sounds like a real recipe for a fatigue, <laughs> fatigued workforce. Mm. And I might even speak then to, I suppose, burnout is so commonly discussed in the literature as well and again fatigue burnout how do they differentiate from one another and when it comes to burnout there's obviously the three different characterizations of the state and I really think the fatigue kind of comes into the emotional exhaustion aspect um because we can talk about fatigue in terms of you know cognitive load is really you know mentally draining you have physical fatigue you know, you might have been on your feet all day. And then there's the emotional fatigue, which I think a lot of people obviously faced working in healthcare over the last year and a half. What do we know about the impact of fatigue on 
clinical decision making um and i think also i'm interested because of that wider application beyond beyond surgery into kind of all other aspects of of clinical care yeah and this kind of became a bit of a a side path in my phd journey I suppose a lot of the literature that looks at cognition uses those very standardized simulation tasks, which maybe not have much applicability to real life. So when we talk about clinical decision making, there's a few different models that we look at. There's um, the fast and frugal approach to clinical decision making, which is uh, popularized by a German um, called Gerd Gigerenzer. And his idea is that people are intuitively making the right decisions all the time. You think about your day-to-day things, you do things without even realizing you're doing them, but you often make the right decision. And on the other side of the coin, you have um, Daniel Kahneman and um, his, his dual process kind of fast and, flow, fast and slow type of thinking. And I think this has a lot more applicability to healthcare practice because we're constantly changing between being um, intuitive and then having to think logically about something. So... We did uh, kind of a pilot exploration of whether surgeons were making the right type of decisions in the right setting. And we looked at the implications of higher versus cognitive load on, on those decisions. And we did find that surgeons were more likely to take greater risks um, in a setting when they were reporting a higher cognitive load. And particularly younger surgeons were more likely to do that as well. Whereas the more risk adverse older surgeons who had lower cognitive load um, were, were less likely to make perhaps the wrong decision. So I think that's an, that's an interesting finding, um, which came kind of incidentally, I suppose, within the research. So if you're young and you're more likely to take risks, you're more likely to make a mistake. Is that kind of what you found? So what we found was that, and I think we don't know the reasons for this, but younger practitioners probably feel a certain uh, pressure to perform. And I think as the older you get into training, it's when you learn, you learn when not to operate as opposed to when to operate. And I think that experience perhaps mitigates to some degree um, that kind of intuitive decision-making, which is much more likely to happen in a fatigued state. So Pat, Dr. Pat Cosgray has kind of created this dual process theory to clinical decision making. And my hypothesis is that when a surgeon might be engaged, say in the theatre, and they're making kind of intuitive decisions, um, continuously doing so, and they begin to feel a bit fatigued, that they are less likely to be able to activate the more logical, rational decision making when it's required, and therefore continue on with intuition and perhaps then, you know, make a wrong decision come the end of it. And as we kind of discussed earlier on, our younger surgeons are more likely to have cognitive load for a myriad of reasons. And we'll be back in a moment after a note from our sponsor. At Medical Protection, we know how challenging recent times have been for all medical practitioners. And as they work tirelessly to look after others, We wanted to help our members focus on their own physical, mental and emotional well-being. So we've partnered with ICAS International to provide a confidential one-to-one counselling service, offering support for issues such as stress, burnout, anxiety and conflict. Members can also access a wellness app to help monitor, measure and promote balanced healthy living, as well as a host of handy podcasts and webinars. Our wellbeing programme is just one of many reasons for doctors to choose medical protection. 
To find out more about membership, which also includes comprehensive protection, advice and risk prevention support, visit medicalprotection.org. One of the things that strikes me is that, you know, some of our listeners might be interested in kind of this cognitive theory and, you know, may have read some of Gerga Gorenza, um, who's certainly written for the BMJ in the past. You know, they may have read kind of Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow. But in, in my now very out of date experience, we didn't get taught any of this at, at medical school about, you know, what is what are the thinking patterns that we might fall into you know how might we make decisions so you know what do you think we can do to help people increase their awareness of the ways in which they might be making decision and I guess do you think that would help mitigate the risk of um, relying on perhaps the wrong decision making process in the wrong moment absolutely Kat as I kind of said the non-technical training has only really begun began to be developed in the last few years. And we're beginning now to see the potential opportunities to optimize uh, cognitive patterns of thinking in clinical environments. I think a lot of it came from historic associations that you couldn't question the, the healthcare practitioner, that what they were doing was Bible. And um, suddenly now we have all of these kind of external agencies looking at uh, healthcare professionals. We have patients being involved in shared decision making. So suddenly we're realizing, you know, healthcare professions aren't gods anymore. We're, we're just as valuable as everyone else within society. And that's a fundamental shift, both with regards to how society needs to look at healthcare workers and also how healthcare workers need to look at healthcare workers, that we, that we are going to make mistakes. That is inevitable. And how can we best mitigate that? So I do think creating a curricula around the different modes of thinking. We didn't even have it in physiotherapy. We don't have it in any healthcare profession, in my experience. Um, despite the fact that clinical decision making is such a core component of many healthcare professions. And I really think simulation is, is, has a huge opportunity here as well, because you do need to put someone into a situation where they actually feel challenged in there and they have a certain level of cognitive dissonance um, to uh, what they think should happen versus what actually happens with regards to patient outcomes. So I think simulation is, is, has a huge opportunity to, to help people increase their level of self-awareness, uh, develop better metacognition. Um, and yeah, hopefully reduce some of those cognitive biases that could potentially negatively impact on performance. And this probably falls outside of your research, Dale, so don't worry if you can't answer it, but I just wonder, is there a way of recognising fatigue within yourself and are there any things you can do to kind of reduce the risk of making a mistake? I, I mean, I've certainly read a lot of the fatigue literature and it was a really interesting change in way of my way of thinking about fatigue. I think we think very negatively about the state and we think of it as, as an outcome in relation to something that's happened um, preceding it. But if we actually fundamentally change and think about fatigue as an emotion and an emotional experience, and it's an emotional signal, signal basically telling us that something's not going right, right right now with regards to you and the environment or the task that you're engaging in. So if you begin to feel sad, for example, you're going to probably identify what's making you feel sad. You're going to do something to help you not feel as sad. Um, and it's, that's a certain level of introspection um, and being able to reflect on, on those emotional experiences. Whereas we don't do that with fatigue. So the actual trajectory of fatigue and its relationship with performance is a lot more nuanced than 
um, we perhaps intuitively think, just because your fatigue doesn't necessarily mean that straight away you're going to be negatively impacted by performance. What happens is that you begin to feel a signal of fatigue coming on and you continue to push through that fatigue and it creates a strain state and then you begin to have to overcompensate and then you begin to feel a little bit like burnt out and then suddenly performance is, is dr- dramatically impacted. So if we can pause the brakes when we begin to get the, that first uh, signal of fatigue and reevaluate the environment and say, is my motivations and my goals matching what task I'm currently doing or what environment I'm currently in? And what can I do to modify that? That that's I just keep saying this, but that's so fascinating, Dale. I just I think often, well, my personal reflection is that I think I often um, conflate fatigue and sleep deprivation in that way. So if I start to feel fatigue, I don't think of it as an emotional response. I think, oh, I must be sleep deprived, even if I think I have slept well and or I have slept well, and, and I I don't kind of interpret it in in that way. And I'm thinking very much of you know being a parent of a young baby and you know obviously actually being sleep deprived but also you know that sort of sometimes very demotivating state of looking after a constantly crying baby uh you know and not necessarily recognizing that kind of emotional strain um fantastic so that really brings us on to you know this is a topic podcast about well-being so you know what are the impacts of you've talked a bit about fatigue but what are the impacts of fatigue and sleep deprivation on on the well-being of of our healthcare staff so i really got interested in lifestyle medicine and positive psychology as disciplines to help and try and address some of these issues of burnout within healthcare workers i think what's happened in the past is that we've tried to do much more kind of um targeted kind of education-based interventions that really only have a certain um level of impact i think it's been so car- caricatured within within twitter anyway around how send someone off to a well-being seminar because they're burned out um so it really is actually about developing a much more systematic and a organizationally led and also a grassroots led um approach to addressing well-being within healthcare so we looked at, i'm quite interested in how work-life balance is no longer a concept that we as a nation can relate to. Um, Back in the 60s and 70s, there was this idea of the 40-hour working week and you went home and you had your non-work life. But workers are now, the average worker works 10 to 12 hours more than they did in the 1970s. And that's only getting more, particularly as work becomes more meaningful to people. And, you know, where do you blur the lines between training and work, for example? So we need to look at actually how the lifestyle factors of individuals are impacting on their performance as well and what we found with our surgeons was that there was really poor diet habits they were ha- less than half were having breakfast and lunch um on a daily basis and only 60 percent were having dinner on a daily basis there was a caffeine consumption of something like seven cups a day um which was just startling in comparison to other like professions uh, sleep quality and quantity obviously we've discussed that already but even more nuanced stuff like ability to actually switch off when you leave the work environment to be engaged in non-work activities and for me for example running is so important to just get away and, and have something else that I feel I have a sense of achievement and, and um, stress relieving from so how can we actually facilitate the work environment and also in- increase the capacity of the individual to improve some of those lifestyle based factors as well and that is a combination of building 
resources within the individuals. We did a coaching intervention on our surgeons, but also looking at how can we facilitate better autonomy in the workplace for the individual to better manage their workloads um, to, to, to you know, work at times that work best for them. Um, and other things as well, like having a supportive network within the workplace and how culture can be better facilitated towards positive change as opposed to uh, reinforcing negative stereotypes of the sleepy surgeon. And yeah, I suppose those combination of things. It's really interesting, Dale, to hear you talk about those kind of uh, more uh, lifestyle related factors, kind of caffeine intake and food. And I wonder how your surgeons, you said you kind of did some coaching with them. I mean, did that involve talking to them about drinking too much coffee or eating the right food? And if it did, how did they respond to that? So I suppose the difference with coaching relative to mentoring or to any other sort of um, kind of counselling type of therapy is that it's actually a a patient-led initiative. So they identify it within themselves, something that they would like to focus on, and therefore the coach works with them to facilitate that behaviour change. So we actually had an independent qualified coach work with them, and I followed up at the end to basically identify with them what were the areas that they focused on, and sleep better time management, better dieting, increasing physical activity is a huge one amongst our surgeons, which um, 90% of them rated exercise as being extremely important to them and less than 20% were actually meeting the recommended physical activity guidelines. So that was quite interesting. So that became something I suppose for that could be a focus uh, for some of them to go on to as well. And I think it really it was just about re-evaluating uh, being able to step away from the profession, engage with a non-healthcare worker who can be like, hold the mirror up to them and be like, well, here's how things are going for you. What areas would you actually like to improve on? I ask, because I think sometimes when we, and Kat, with the work that Kat and I do on this podcast, sometimes you worry that offering advice around things like how individuals can make changes to their own lifestyle seems A, a bit patronising and also minor in the face on, of what is otherwise a systemic problem that is you know causing fatigue among our doctors but it's so it's really interesting to hear from you that that there is an aspect that that can be helpful yeah and I totally agree with you Abby there has to be a certain point at which we say you know enough is enough with regards to you know working a certain amount of hours a week you know, rise in COVID admissions into hospital settings and people working however many hours. We've, we've, it's well established that patient death has been linked to fatigue and sleep deprivation. We've had cases such as the Zion Law in New York dating back to the 20th century. What, at what point, I suppose, what's the outcome in which we say enough is enough to actually make fundamental changes to our healthcare systems? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, as you said, Abby, the onus can often be on the professional to improve, you know, you know, yes, reduce your caffeine intake if you're drinking seven cups of coffee a day. But if you're drinking those seven cups of coffee, because you've got this huge sleep debt, because of your on call pattern, then, you know, it's that addressing the kind of underlying causes as well isn't it or you know you can't get out for a run because of your working hours and actually if you don't just go home and go to sleep <laughs> you know you're you're even more in in trouble with your with your sleep debt yeah i think it's and com- i think such complex factors i really I, I and comparisons have been made in the past and um, poorly made but also i think there's legitimate comparisons to be made with the aviation sector and how aviation has systematically addressed issues of fatigue. So I suppose when we look at aviation, it kind of emerged from 
post-World War II eras, people were flying planes that weren't necessarily the most qualified. They were flying sleep deprived or sleep deprived. And there was huge amounts of crashes in the 50s and 60s, uh, huge, uh, I suppose, civil death. And they fundamentally changed the kind of systems with regards to how many hours they were allowed to work, what type of working was involved. Every year they undergo um, simulation training now to ensure that competencies are kept up to date. And they also change fundamental cultures as well. So they kind of go in every day, they check their fatigue levels and it's very much embedded within the practice that you don't do this if you're fatigued. We worked with the Irish Air Corps as part of my research to try and look at some of those system-based issues in healthcare um, relative to aviation. And I remember being startled by a comment from a pilot who said that if a pilot has to work for more than 24 hours or maybe it's 24 to 36 hours, the president of Ireland has to authorise for that to, to occur. So there's a very much of a difference, I suppose, in how we treat aviation versus how we treat healthcare. And I wonder whether that has to do with um, the level of risk um, when it comes to negative um, outcomes. There's a huge amount of civil death, obviously, if a plane goes down. Whereas if, uh, if it's only one patient dying on an operating theatre, it's much more difficult to, I suppose, make those changes when it's not, as, I suppose, as large in one quantity, even though it might be happening continuously. Absolutely. I think, you know, we know, for example, that harm in primary care is very frequent, but quite low level. So, you know, it's hard to make the argument, even though it's maybe one million patients harmed a year from, you know, clinical decision making errors. But but obviously, those aren't kind of harms like wrong site surgery or, or operating death. So it's, it's difficult. I think the other thing just listening to you is, you know, if a pilot's fatigued, you don't have to fly you can say okay fine the flight doesn't have to go ahead but you know if you've done a 24-hour shift and then your replacement calls in sick and there's no one to stay and look after the patients that that can't be put on hold you know those patients will continue to be sick they will continue to need care there is no ability to say stop the conveyor belt we all need to get off um and and that i think is is a really huge challenge for medicine and healthcare um, I don't have an answer for that it's a slightly depressing reflection um, but equally we know if we don't resource it better so that we can give people the breaks they need we're just going to get a much more this continuing attrition uh, of, of frontline staff who who you know don't want to carry on working in these environments anymore. Definitely Kat I mean increased resources is obviously the gold standard that's what we 100% need to do but even if we can better facilitate adjunct mitigators in those shorter term circumstances where nothing can be avoided. So, you know, make better sleep facilities on site. Do not make a person do work that they don't have to do unless it is absolutely of utmost importance. Um, do you know, provide caffeine on site to the staff if, if, you know, that's what they need to do to get by for the next few hours. And yeah, it's, it's so sort of, I suppose, supportive culture um, within the organisation as well, where they recognise that, yes, people do have to stay on sometimes, unfortunately, and here's what we're going to do actually to support you in those settings. And we'll be back in a moment. As a doctor always on the go, you need quick access to accurate evidence-based clinical recommendations you can trust. UpToDate is a continuously updated clinical decision support resource that helps you find answers to your medical questions. 
benefit from access to more than 12,000 clinical topics across more than 25 specialities, with more than 9,500 graded expert recommendations at your fingertips. Join the growing network of over 2 million medical professionals worldwide who rely on UpToDate. Visit go.uptodate.com slash wellbeing. That's go.uptodate.com slash wellbeing and use promo code wellbeing to save 25 US dollars on your annual or longer subscription. This might be um, opening a can of worms or a question you might not want to answer, but I'd be interested to know if there are any changes that could come about within the culture of surgery that would help, you know, improve improve this issue I wonder whether there's any kind of kudos around operating for 12 hours without taking a break that maybe needs to be reconsidered for example absolutely Abby I think culture eats strategy for breakfast I think someone said that before and the culture within surgery is so strong culture within medicine is very strong um so there's no point in bringing in all these initiatives and efforts if they aren't actually going to get buy-in um from the stakeholders within the profession. So I fundamentally think that it, it has to be consultant-led kind of process with regards to how we are going to facilitate culture change within surgery. They are the ultimate model makers within the profession and the old age surgeon of working 48 hours a week uh, or 48 hours, sorry, a week if we wish, um, 48 hours <laughs> continuously um, is hopefully coming it's the slow trajectory, but hopefully it's coming towards the other end of the spectrum. I suppose when we look at actually Halstead, who created this whole culture within surgery, he himself was a cocaine addict. Um, so the whole fundamental like beginnings of the profession is, I suppose, underpinned by uh, high use of um, illegal substances. So I suppose if we can change that idea that you actually can't optimise your performance unless you do this, this and this. And one of those things is getting sufficient sleep. It's not working for 12 hours straight. Um, and you actually will probably get yourself higher up the ladder if you do these things. Um, and, you, you know, you'll probably get do better in your exams. You'll, you know, you'll feel better. You'll be more liked by your colleagues, etc. Um but I do think it has to be consultant lev for that process. And I think what is an emerging demographic and certainly something I noticed within the research was uh, the changing gender role within the profession and how younger female surgeons are now coming in. In the past, there was this idea that the female surgeon had to, you know, basically be the male surgeon, but better um, in order to make it. But you can see now, and I see it amongst my colleagues, you know, female surgeons actually taking time out of their training to to have a child to you know take a break to go do something else and they're changing that idea that you don't have to be a consultant by the age of 40 you know you can you can wait and you can you can do those sort of things and that's the fundamental shift i think we need where you can these people are coming in they're going to be consultants eventually and say you know this is not the the white middle class male uh, profession that it has been for so long there's emerging demographics and with that brings emerging different work patterns that's a really good point dale and and i think also what kind of excites me about your research was with the kind of nature of the coaching intervention um and that idea that it's very kind of led by the individual reflecting on and, and working out their own needs um and then being able to, to implement those changes um, which is very different from a kind of top-down um you know kind of edict from the royal college of surgeons and perhaps suggests a, a more positive way to make to make change 
And how do we, how do we help people to thrive? Yeah, so I, I mean, I did kind of theoretical explanatory framework, basically trying to look at different variables that could help facilitate this. So environmentally, it is about increasing autonomy. It's about increasing perceived level of competency within the workplace and increasing a supportive and receptive network within the workplace. And then within the individual, there's three different areas that they can focus on. So the first is building use of psychological skill in the workplace. So we focus a lot and we talked a lot about um, professional competencies like you know scholarship, uh, management skills, etc. But how can we actually you know promote relaxation skills in the workplace, self-talk, positive self-talk, um, goal setting, all those sort of more psychological skills that say elite athletes do as part of their training. And then the last or the second one is building psychological capital, which is the term that we, we use a lot more within kind of the humanistic side of, of psychology. And there's four different aspects of psychological capital. It's hope, optimism, resilience. I brought up resilience, the big bad word, and um, self, self-efficacy. So building those sort of four personal resources within, within an individual as well. And then the last one, which I think has a lot of applicability to healthcare workers, is increasing their ability to actually recover uh, in, and engage in non-work activities that they find soothing and relaxing. So um, being able for them to identify strategies for them to be able to do that is really important. So there are three areas, I think, which could help surgeons uh, thrive in the workplace just a little bit more. Sounds like they could help everybody thrive in the workplace. Absolutely. <laughs> fantastic. Thank you. Um, I'm really glad we got onto that at the end, Dale. That was really... I, yeah, we should have probably talked more about that earlier on, but um, it's, it's it sounds incredibly rich. Um, and I think, you know, just to have someone with that, you know, your facility that you have with the kind of healthcare professional aspect of, of you, but also that facility with, and familiarity with the psychological literature and the kind of human and social sciences literature that, you know, often is lacking uh, in our... Um, healthcare sort of focus and paradigm is really valuable um was there anything that you wanted to talk about that you haven't had the opportunity to talk about that we could you know we could tee us up for some questions that we could ask you um not necessarily i suppose speaking from personal reflection i think it's very easy for the researcher to get lost in the theory and um, and actually not apply it to practice but based on my own experience as well, I've gone through states of burnout and fatigue as a, as a practitioner. And I've tried to apply some of these principles within myself to see whether they're um, actually real. And I certainly found that when I, I focused on building those psychological skill use, the recovery and the psychological capital, I did, I did begin to see those changes. I think what we, we've become a, a a capitalistic led society where we expect to see outcomes straight away and we expect to see you know we want uh, results straight away and that's unfortunately just not how it works with the mind it's it's all about incremental small changes um in brain patterns and brain connectivity and i i found for myself mindfulness was really useful for that but i think not in the way that it's i suppose commonly discussed within healthcare literature, it really helped me to develop a certain level of introspection, to be able to link thoughts to emotions, to behaviours, which was such a useful activity. Because once you have an idea of that pattern and that habit, you can suddenly begin begin the process of changing those habits for, for better outcomes. And for me, it was actually about trying four or five different meditative practices to find which one suited me. So I've been doing some kind of 
lectures and stuff with healthcare workers in the last year to basically say, okay, mindfulness might not be for you. Transcendental meditation works for me. There's compassion-based meditative activity which could help with burnout. And this is really, this is up and coming uh, emerging literature that is where we are going to be, you know, building the mind is going to be as important as building the body um, in 20 years time. So I think we just need to figure out better strategies to, to help healthcare workers be engaged in those sort of activities. Absolutely. And Dale and I mean, Abby and I have both experienced, you know, problems with mental health and certainly I've experienced burnout in the past. And I think for me, it's not just building those habits that you said, but recognising that it's an ongoing practice, you know, and that, you know, you don't just kind of put build that capital and then just deplete it all again. You have to continually keep topping it up um, through these kind of regular habits, whether that is mindfulness or different types of meditation or running or, you know, whatever whatever it is. Um, and that, that those are skills that we need to, to help people develop um, and then give them the space and capacity to maintain them, um, you know, on an ongoing basis. That's a really good analogy, Gat. I never even thought of it in the sense that, you know, if you're you know, saving money, for example, and you're saving capital, you'll always kind of save a small bit and then you might go on a big splurge, but you'll hopefully not deplete your bank into sort of a deficit. Um, so we should be doing the exact same thing when it comes to having these sort of psychological capital um, as well, you know, continue to build on that daily basis um, and, you know, allow ourselves to spend a little bit of it then in circumstances where it's unavoidable. Um, that's a really good analogy. Kat, I thought that was really interesting. And what resonated personally for me is learning a bit more about the difference between fatigue and being sleep deprived, because I have found working from home that I feel quite fatigued after a day full of online meetings. But then I tell myself I don't have a reason to be tired because all I've done is sat at a desk all day. So it's quite nice to learn a bit more about the difference between those two things absolutely that was such a kind of light bulb for me that idea of fatigue as an emotional state and that has different causes especially the idea of like variety of work or work that particularly motivates you and then I thought that's like that sort of framework theoretical framework about you know your feeling of competency having a supportive network and and how those things you know may have been eroded for for some people during the pandemic obviously in our work context but you know for GPs as I said who might be feeling isolated and working from home um or for you know people in hospitals who uh I kind of lost my track of thought people in hospitals who might be working outside their usual clinical area I know that's mostly resolved now but but the kind of impact that must have had for people during during the pandemic um on their um not just their performance but their ability to to feel good about their own performance and to thrive at work Mm, absolutely I also really appreciated Dale's reflection on what's worked for him and how you know without wanting to focus too much on on personal interventions it sounds like sometimes those can help but you know you kind of need to give them the time and the space to do so and I think if it was me I would be one of those people who would be impatient and be like oh, I've tried mindfulness and it's not not worked so it's nice to hear him reflect reflect in that way yeah absolutely I hadn't really considered the idea that you know a meditation practice you know there might be a different type of meditation practice that that works for you and that idea of kind of exploring a a range of options I think is really interesting I think also you know some of the research about 
um, you know, the amount of physical activity that clinicians were getting or, you know, the amount of caffeine they were taking or the quality of their diet. I mean, these are things that we kind of know, but I thought having that that data was actually really shocking um, and sort of adds so much more weight to the argument that, you know, there has to be kind of hot, nutritious food available for staff around the clock and just how important that is um, for people's ability to to thrive but also to not be fatigued to and to sort of perform in a way that that is safe for patients and for staff mm, absolutely and as a clinician did, did you his sort of discussion around um clinical decision making did that make sense to you did that resonate Absolutely. I think, you know, you make decisions all the time and, you know, you are often not very conscious about how you're making those decisions compared to how, you know, one might consciously make a big decision in your personal life, um, you know, kind of taking time to weigh up the pros and cons. There's, there's so much kind of instinctive decision making and we know that's appropriate for set, certain settings and it's appropriate for emergencies. But I think perhaps if we're over relying on that decision making framework, um, especially when we're we're fatigued or we have a high cognitive load, um, then that does in, introduce this element of risk. Um, and so to sort of understand and be able to recognise that, I think is, is really, really important. Um, um, and to recognise situations where we do have more time to stop and, and reflect um, and also often to seek help, I think, which we didn't talk about. But I think, you know, moving away from a culture of having to make all those decisions on your own in the moment and recognising where you can pause and choose not to act, not to operate, not to treat, not to intervene, I think is, is really important. Absolutely. And I think that's a nice place to end. So I will say thank you very much to our guest, Elle Wheelerhand, for coming onto the podcast. And you can check us out on social media. We're at BMJ underscore latest on Twitter or join the BMJ Wellbeing Group on Facebook. We always like to hear your ideas for what we might cover in future episodes. Until next time, it's goodbye from us. Bye. Bye.